Welcome to the fall season of the Row and Roper podcast. This is actually officially the first Row and Roper podcast presented by AmericanEagle.com Studios. I'm Ro Khan. I'm Richard Roper. The whole idea of this podcast. I almost said that as a question, but I'm sure I am. <laughs> Just for those of you playing at home. Thank you. In this podcast, we're going to be looking at a lot of different things. We're going to be looking at films because you're the film critic of the Chicago Sun-Times. We're going to be looking at pop culture. We're going to be looking at a little bit of politics and at least how pop culture and politics intersect, which they do hourly, actually every minute, actually every second of our modern life. A lot of times people feel like they're watching a reality show. Of course, we have the former superstar from a reality show who's the, the president of the United States. So the worlds collide all the time, Ro, which is, you know, when people say to me, stick to movies, or they say to sports reporters, stick to sports, or I wish sports didn't get uh, mixed up with politics. Sports has always been intertwined with activism and politics, and entertainment has always been about what's happening in our world or what happened in our world that we can relate to today. So all of this kind of ties together and that's why we thought for the first one we'd talk about the trial of the chicago seven they tried it peacefully we gonna try something else these rebels without a job they're a threat to national security it's revolution we may have to hurt somebody's feelings When you came to Chicago, were you hoping to draw the police into a confrontation? I'm concerned you have to think about it. Give me a moment, would you, friend? I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. This is from writer-director Aaron Sorkin. People know him, of course, from The Social Network and Moneyball and Molly's Game, and I mentioned all those movies because they're all based on true stories as well as this is. This is based on the uh, infamous trial of the Chicago 7. They started off as the Chicago 8, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. I want to talk real quickly, too, Ro, about the release pattern for the trial of the Chicago 7. It's currently playing in theaters. It came out a couple of weeks ago, but will be coming to Netflix October 16th. This is the same pattern that Netflix followed with The Irishman. Three weeks in theaters. Of course, there are a lot more theaters open uh, when The Irishman came out. Unfortunately, that's not the case now. But it is playing in very limited release. So there's no doubt that it is eligible for the 10 Oscar nominations I think it's going to get. Wow. But probably 99% of the people who are going to see this movie are going to see it at home via Netflix. This podcast is based in Chicago. So throughout the season, we'll be talking about things that are related to Chicago or at least seen through the Chicago lens. Chicago 7 is one of those stories that is legendary in this town. And Aaron Sorkin, who you sat down with, talked about the fact he wasn't even sure what the Chicago 7 trial was. This all started in 2006 when I was asked to come to Steven Spielberg's house on a Saturday morning. And to be clear, that's uncommon. I, I don't hang out with <laughs> Spielberg. Uh, and he told me that he wanted me to, he wanted to direct and he wanted me to write a film about the riots in 1968 and the conspiracy trial uh, that followed. I said, count me in. I am on board and left his house and called my father and asked him what happened in Chicago in 1968. And do you know anything about a conspiracy trial that followed? Mm -hmm. I had only a vague sense of what Stephen was talking about. I was saying yes to Stephen. We were also going to hear from Joseph Gordon-Levitt, one of the stars in this amazing ensemble cast, and we'll talk about the cast in detail as the podcast goes on. Ro, why don't we talk a little bit about the actual trial of the Chicago 7? You grew up in Chicago. I grew up in Dalton, which is a south suburb just immediately 
south of the city. So we're, we're Chicago area guys our whole lives. I'm a little bit older than you, so I was actually eight years old when the 1968 Democratic National Convention took place and the nine when the trial took place. The Vietnam War was raging, protests in the streets, college students in particular. Several different groups of anti-Vietnam War protesters came to Chicago to get their message out, shall we say, uh, during the convention. Right. Well, let's even go back further in context here. 1968 was a crazy year. It started with a Saigon attack. For the first time, Hmm. the headquarters of the U.S. and South Vietnamese armies were attacked in their capital of Saigon. Walter Cronkite goes to Vietnam in February, I think it was, of 1968, and he makes that very famous announcement. But it is increasingly clear to this reporter that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. And to put this in, in further perspective, and I, I talked to some younger people, some millennials about this podcast, Rowan, about the movie itself. And Aaron Sorkin also talks about the fact that this is this is ancient history. This might as well be 1369 instead of 1969 for a lot of young people, and I get this. But consider this. The Vietnam War is raging, and we had a draft at the time. We had a military draft, and incredible as it sounded, it looked just like the NBA draft. Ping pong balls in a giant canister, except for your life was literally on the line. 365 days, right? And they would pick birth dates out one after another. And you hear about, you know, my number came up in that kind of phrase. If if you were number seven, you were going to get drafted and you were going to get sent to Vietnam. You were not going to be at Fort Knox. You were not going to be on some base in the the States or going to Germany in most cases. And the people who were getting drafted, the young men who were getting drafted, 18, right? You had to be 18 years old. Think about that. Think about being 18 years old. If you couldn't get a college deferment, it was a lot harder to get into college or get scholarships and grants back then. If you couldn't figure out a way to get out of it like certain people could, disproportionate number of African-Americans, of working-class whites, of poor whites who were drafted. And Lyndon B. Johnson, uh, as the war was escalating, announced that they were doubling the number of people who were going to get drafted. So imagine, people really, really care, and I would never uh, you know, disparage this, the amount of passion people have for their protest right now. And in some cases, their lives really are on the line. But in this case, the Vietnam War protest, a lot of those students, yes, they were in college, but they were going to either get out or they had friends. You were going to get drafted, and you were going to have to go fight in Vietnam, a war that a lot of people thought we never should have been involved in. And it was an election year. Mm. Probably more importantly, if this same set of circumstances, Saigon had been attacked, Walter Cronkite had come out and said that there is really no reason for the United States to be in this war, and all the other things that had happened in that year, had happened the year before, 1967, I don't think we would have had this reaction. And then... We move forward to the spring of 1968. In April, you have Martin Luther King assassinated. In June, you have Bobby Kennedy assassinated. On my birthday, by the way, I just as an aside would like to say that for my fourth birthday party, which was being held at a Park District field house, no one showed up that morning because it had been announced that Bobby Kennedy had been killed. And so when... We were calling for the party at 10 a.m. for all the kids to show up at the presents. Oh, there were none. God. I mean, that was, my, that was my entree into 1968. And then my dad took me to Lincoln Park, really the first encampment right. of all the hippies and yippies and anarchists and all the other people who were showing up uh, for the demonstrations that eventually went to Grant Park, which is a downtown park, right. Lincoln Park, a gigantic lakefront park that that starts in a very fancy neighborhood and works its way up mm-hmm. uh, through about a third of Chicago. 
and that was one of the craziest early memories of my life was being put on my dad's shoulders mm. and having him walk through the park and all these people smoking dope and and literally I didn't even understand what a tambourine drum was <laughs> and that's all that wow. was my first memory yeah. of a tambourine drum. I had a similar experience. A neighbor on my block, his mom, my best friend growing up, his mom was a classic hippie protest liberal mom who got a lot of moms got really active and she had the holy trinity of pictures in the kitchen you had jesus <laughs> you had john f kennedy and you had martin luther king you know the portraits up she had a white van and she'd take us driving we wouldn't get out of the van i was again it was eight years old nine years old you know and she would take us downtown to see certain things you mentioned bobby kennedy you know the last public speech he's giving in california He was making a move. He had entered the race late. Hubert Humphrey ended up being the nominee. So the convention was going to be a real convention right. in 1968 in Chicago. And Mayor Daley I, who famously had said after the, uh, the the burnings and the fires and the looting after Martin Luther King was assassinated, that the police aren't there to create disorder. They're there to preserve the disorder, he had said. And he had given orders to shoot to kill. It was what he had said. Shoot to kill when we're talking about looters and protesters and so against this backdrop row the convention was at the at the uh, international amphitheater in chicago they were not allowing anybody near protest wise near the actual convention site so now you had these various factions you had the yippies uh abby hoffman uh, was one of them and jerry rubin who okay. were kind of the clown princes of the protest movement you had the students for the democratic society and that was tom hayden who was a student at the time, and people know he went on to become a longtime uh, legislator. legislator in California, married to Jane Fonda, passed away a few years ago. Uh, he had he had, he was a more traditional, he was young, but a more traditional form of protester. And then you had the old school guys like David Dellinger. David Dellinger was a guy who was you know a generation older than this group, and there's a great line in the movie. I can take the stand. I'm easier for them to like. I'm literally a Boy Scout troop leader. <laughs> <laughs> You're a conscientious objector. A lot of people are conscientious objectors. During World War II, you sat out World War II. Even I want to punch you. So all these different factions who didn't really know each other, but they all came to Chicago in 1968 with the intention of marching and maybe causing some disruptions. And that was the seed and the basis for the movie and then the trial itself in real life. So we move on to the trial, which was a conspiracy trial of these eight individuals, including yes. Bobby Seale, who was at that point the head of the Black Panther Party, but had only been in Chicago, not with the hippies and yippies and all. all the people no. that were involved in the riots. But he was here simply to make a speech for the Black yeah. Panther Party at a separate event. He gets rolled in because they wanted to indict him for something. Yeah, and what had happened was uh, in 1968... Uh, Ramsey Clark, who was the Attorney General of the United States, who's played by Michael Keaton in the movie and has a very small key role, uh, his investigation had come to the conclusion that the police had started the trouble. That there was all, you know, you, you see the footage and you will talk about it in the movie, all these clashes between Chicago police and protesters. And his conclusion was there were no indictments that should be brought down against the protesters because they didn't start it. The president asked me if I intended to seek any indictments related to the riots the previous month in Chicago. And what did you tell him? I told him we wouldn't be seeking indictments. And can you tell us why? An investigation by our criminal division led to the conclusion that the riots were started by the Chicago Police Department. Cut to 1969, President Nixon 
Attorney General John Mitchell, who hates the hippies and hates the protesters, they're the ones who said, all right, we're bringing charges against these guys. They crossed state lines with the purpose of a conspiracy to incite a riot. That's a federal crime. Let's put them all on trial. And that's what happens in 1969, and that is the centerpiece for the movie. I think Michael Keaton's amazing in this movie. One of those really small roles that could get an Oscar nomination this year because he is Michael Keaton and because this particular scene, which is the setup for how the defense team for the Chicago 7 went to the former attorney general for the United States of America and asked him to testify for the defense against the United States of America. That's what those two men came to tell me, that if John Mitchell wants to cut me in half, he can and he will. So I wanted them in the room when I said, when do you want me in court? Mr. Clark? I'm sorry? Swear me in, Bill. It is against the law for you to testify, Ramsey. It is as simple as that. It's General Clark. And arrest me or shut the fuck up. Ro, it's an incredible cast. Uh, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, who just won an Emmy, plays Bobby Seale. Jeremy Strong plays Jerry Rubin. He just won an Emmy for his role in Succession. He plays the son of the guy, the billionaire media guy. Sasha Baron Cohen is Abby Hoffman. Joseph Gordon-Levin, who we talked to, plays Richard Schultz. He's the young prosecutor who brings the case against the Chicago 8, eventually the Chicago 7. And Frank Langella as Judge Julius Hoffman, who was a very old-school, traditional guy, hated the hippies, found them just to be disgusting and nauseating, and he ruled the courtroom in a way you're going to see in this movie. People are going to hear about this. You won't even believe a lot of it. I mean, they they immediately got rid of any jurors who looked like they might be sympathetic to the defendants. They tried them all together, even though Bobby Seale kept saying, first of all, my lawyer's sick and in the hospital. Also, I came into town for a few hours. In reality, he came in for a few days. But the reality is he was not tied with these group. And there's a couple of the guys... Lee Weiner and uh, John Freund's, who are off to the side. They got a separate table, right? They're getting tried as well. But the superstars, of course, are Bobby Seale and Ruben and Hoffman. And the one guy says that the other guy's like, well, for the life of me, I can't figure out what the two of us are doing here. I feel exactly the same way, but this is the Academy Awards of protest. And as far as I'm concerned, it's an honor just to be nominated. When you see this movie, it takes what's a really complicated story and it breaks it down, distills it to a Hollywood movie. And, of course, we've talked about all of the real-life stories that Aaron Sorkin has adapted as a writer. He also wrote, arguably, in the top five courtroom dramas of all time, Row. I think a lot of people would put A Few Good Men there. That was, a, that was a play that Aaron Sorkin wrote, and then he wrote the screenplay for it. So you've got a guy who specializes in adapting real-life stories and making them very interesting and stylized, who also wrote one of the great courtroom dramas of all time. So this material, I think, is perfect for him. And we're already here, and I know some folks have talked about, well, this isn't historically accurate, and the timeline is different than they have it in the movie, and that never took place. And I'm like, it's a movie, folks. It's not a documentary. It's a fictional dramatization, interpretation that contains essential truths. And to me, it's madness when people start dissecting films based on real-life events and say what really happened and what didn't. Every single movie that's ever been based on a true life event since 1901 has taken poetic license. That's why they're called dramas. So, yes, there are certain things that, you know, are imagined conversations. There are certain shifts in the timeline. This trial went on for months. This movie goes on for a little more than two 
hours. You have to make sacrifices. You have to make compromises. And you actually have to, and Aaron Sorkin talks about this. Aaron Sorkin talks about this role. You got to entertain the hell out of folks before you can teach them anything. Because a, no, a movie that people feel is a history lesson is a movie that dies. Before a film can be anything else, before it can be relevant, before it can be persuasive, before it can start a discussion, it has to be a good film. Just by the rules of drama, it has to be a good story well told. It has to be successful as something you would eat popcorn during. Aaron Sorkin also makes the point he doesn't want this to feel like one of those typical 1960s movies where you play the same soundtrack, where it's really showing scenes from the Vietnam War and then scenes from the protest in Chicago or Washington or Detroit or any of those mm -hmm. protests as America was on fire in the spring and summer of 68. He wanted this to feel very different, and it does have a feel kind of like A Few Good Men. I think it was a really smart decision, Ro. You're right. There are certain songs when you hear Sympathy for the Devil, when you hear Fortunate Son. I mean, how many Vietnam movies or sequences? And they're great songs, and they're, they're of the moment. Or the Chambers Brothers with time, you know, the t -t time, time. None of <laughs> right. that. And it's actually, the score is almost, it's, it's not almost. The score is an old-fashioned movie score. It could have been for 12 Angry Men or something, a courtroom drama from way back in the day. And Sorkin talks about that. Yes, you want them to look like, you know, the fashions of the time and the hairstyles. These guys were, you know, they were long-haired hippie freaks, you know. Uh, but it's not about that. And he's, he consciously did not try to make it look as if the actors playing these uh, various defendants were in the news footage. The news footage is often in black and white, and then we cut to the guys. It's make, he's making it very clear which is which. And the other key thing, and people talk about this a lot too, and I'm the first one to say it drives me nuts when Toronto fills in for Chicago or Vancouver fills in for Chicago or these days every other movie and TV show is made in Georgia because apparently they're giving all the peaches away. So everything's filmed <laughs> in Georgia. The Marvel Universe is actually located in Georgia, folks. Uh, but in this case, some of the scenes obviously were shot in studios. Some were shot in New Jersey. But Aaron Sorkin said in this movie, he started working on it, as, as, as you heard him say, almost 15 years ago, but they had to have certain Chicago scenes, and that includes Grand Park and Michigan Avenue. And because we were able to shoot the Grand Park scenes in Grand Park and the Michigan Avenue scenes mm -hmm. in Michigan Avenue, I was able to mix in-camera footage, original footage, with file footage, archival footage, news footage from 1968 which we never tried to pretend is ours. We, we turn it in black and white. But suddenly, there was a way to do the riots that we could fit into our budget. And how about this little tidbit? Most of the Chicago police officers are being played by off-duty Chicago police officers, mm -hmm. many of whom are the children of Chicago police officers who were there uh, wow. in 1968. Yeah, it's, you know, in Chicago and a lot of a lot of cities. I know this is the case in New York and Boston. You know, the, the, you know these classic towns where firefighters and police officers is very generational. And a lot of times nowadays, it's the daughter, it's the niece as well of the police officers. And the Chicago stuff, bro. Again, you know, you go back to the real life stuff. Grant Park is a beautiful park here in Chicago. And you want to talk about coming full circle in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected president. That's where he gave his famous speech in Grant Park. And, right there. And there was a, this huge march down Michigan Avenue, which was just a celebratory march. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people. And the other amazing thing is, and Aaron Sorkin talks about this, there's some residential apartments uh, along Michigan Avenue. So he wondered if there might be some senior citizens who looked out the window when they were recreating the, the riots of 68 and saying, 
Oh my gosh, I'm having a flashback. We had crowds marching down the street, chanting the whole world is watching or free Tom Hayden. Uh, that people, because there are people who've lived in Chicago their whole lives, had to be thinking this can't possibly be happening again. As we mentioned before, 1968 was an election year. And Richard Nixon was the Republican candidate. Richard Nixon came to Chicago early in the fall and had his own celebratory downtown, down Michigan Avenue parade. And that ended up being the reason he got elected president in 1968. Like 1960, he almost lost. And it came down to the state of Illinois, which John Kennedy won in 1960. And Richard Nixon, after that stunt, won Illinois in 68. That made him president, and the rest was history. I think people might be shocked to hear that because Illinois has become such a blue state in the years since then. And I, I believe that that march with Nixon was uh, wingtips and windbreakers uh, were the attire. <laughs> Very different from the yippies and the, and the hippies. And... Ro, I want to talk a little bit about the theatrics of the trial, because, again, when people see this movie, and I think, first of all, as a movie, it's just brilliant. You're, you're going to think, oh, gosh, they got to be going over the top here. And if anything, some of the circus aspects of the trial, Aaron Sorkin, he, he actually had some doubts. In fact, there was this one, there's a scene in the movie where Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin show up wearing judges' robes. And Judge Julius Hoffman, who made it very clear that, Abby Hoffman was no relative, and, and Hoffman said, why have you forsaken me, Father, at one point to him? I mean, he said, take off those robes. They took off the robes, and they had Chicago police officer uniforms underneath. And Aaron Sorkin didn't want to include that scene because he thought it was too over the top, but then he gives credit to the people who talked him into it. Sasha was the first person cast 13 years ago, was Stevens casting. And I remember meeting with Sasha back then and talking about the film. Once things started gearing up again, a little over a year ago, Sasha made it very clear to me, I don't care that 13 years has gone by. Hmm. Uh, no one will be playing this role but me. I, I think that there were threats of violence in there, or, um, more like threats of pranks that he was plainly capable of pulling off. And then, of course, the most astonishing and shocking scene, and you could, I know some, a lot of people, there have been, I mean, well, there have been so many documentaries and books about this trial. People might have seen the courtroom sketches. Bobby Seale, who kept disrupting the proceedings to say, I shouldn't even be here. I don't have the attorney that I want. Those guys are not my attorneys. Kunstler's not my attorney. And Kunstler said, I'm here. I can help, but I'm not his official attorney. The judge finally had it with him, ordered him to be hauled off by the bailiffs. In the movie, they show him being beaten. I don't know if he was or not. I mean, but we know for sure that he was wheeled back in, bound and gagged in an American courtroom and made to sit that way in the courtroom. During the court proceedings in America, a defendant was bound and gagged. We'll stand in recess for one hour and court will resume. It was premeditated murder. Yes, it was. Fred Hampton was assassinated last night. Marshals, put Mr. Seal. He would have been able to hold a gun in his hand when they published the coroner's report. Make sure you ask about the bullet wounds in his shoulders. I strongly caution you, Mr. Seal. I strongly caution you. Oh, strongly fuck yourself. Marshals, take that defendant into a room and deal with him as he should be dealt with. One 
One of the interesting things about this movie, as opposed to the trial, is the way that the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character here, Richard Schultz, who mm-hmm. was the prosecutor, history was not being very kind to Richard Schultz. However, this movie is pretty kind to him because Joseph Gordon-Levitt becomes a character that really is more of an ode to what the Justice Department can be. You mm-hmm. see that a little bit now in modern times, where there are prosecutors in the Justice Department that look at certain prosecutions and go, well, this seems a little more political than it should be, so I need to stand up. And that's the character that Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays. Yeah, I think it's it's a sympathetic portrayal, and you can see there are moments during the trial. He Look, he's a very good prosecutor and is portrayed as such and is going to do everything he can to get a conviction, but doesn't necessarily believe the trial ever should have taken place in, you know, in the first place. Doesn't necessarily agree with that, but now it is taking place you know, the incredible theatrics of the trial. I mean, the trial scenes are the key to this movie. And what I like about it, too, is then we kind of go back and see the events. We see certain things that happen. And again, there are some dramatizations. There are some fictional interpretation of what happened. But it is the essential truth of what happened during those riots, how these guys were all involved from separate separate factions, and what happened at this trial, which went on a lot longer. Again, you know, in the in the movie, it looks like it took place over the course of about a week. It was several months. Again, that's what you do with movies, you know, and I, I think people know that and appreciate that because we don't have six months to watch a movie in real time. Well, well we do now on Netflix, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's talk about the relevance today. One of the reasons that this movie got made now, even though the movie had been in development, as you heard earlier, more than a decade, Mm -hmm. at the urging of Steven Spielberg, now the movie finally gets made. And you cannot help, when watching the Chicago 7, think about what's happening today. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt, in an interview with you, Richard, acknowledges exactly that. It really has a lot of parallels with what's going on today, where people are standing up, using their voices, and and trying to make change in this country, trying to you know stand up against police brutality. And unfortunately, the American government, and especially our president, is um, doing horrible, un-American things, trying to silence people and and prevent people from um, using their right to assemble and and speak. And uh, that was it's it's. It's, this isn't the first time, but it's it's really resonant, and so uh, I'm really proud to be in Trial of Chicago Seven. And yeah, and that's what Sorkin talked about as well. That you know it had to be made in Chicago. You had to have those those scenes, and of course you're gonna anybody watching it is gonna say when you're watching uniformed police who used tear gas and took out their clubs clashing with young protesters. I mean, we're seeing that almost every week, almost every day, sometimes row on the news. So there are a lot of correlations and. And this was, you know, this period, you know, the late 60s, so much happened between about 1966, 67 till the mid 70s. Those were the real 60s, even though, you know, it was spread across two decades because the early part of the 60s was still the early part of the 60s. Right. And kind of Short the haircuts. Mad, the Mad Men era, yeah. you know, but, the, you know, the, the British invasion of 64 and the Beatles and, you know, Woodstock, all of that happened, you know, mid, late 60s. You know, the escalation of the draft, the Vietnam War spiraling out of control, thousands of lives lost the protest movement and obviously it wasn't just about the vietnam war there was a lot of protests for social justice there were a lot of you know martin luther king there's a discussion of his changing philosophy where he was moving on to try to feed the poor do more even more than he already was doing but not solely concentrate on racial inequality he wanted to broaden the tent whereas the black panthers were very much focused on we need change and we need it now all of that 
is happening again today, but was happening in 1968, 1969. And there was so much chaos. And there are a couple interesting touchstones of 1968 that are important to mention here, not in the movie, but other things that happened in that year. The first time American astronauts orbited the moon mm-hmm. at the end of the most chaotic year. In part, that's what elected Richard Nixon to the presidency was that there was so much chaos. People were just sick and tired of the chaos. They wanted a change mm-hmm. from what it was. I think that's kind of a bellwether statement about the way Americans feel right now about the pandemic and all the other crazy chaos that goes on. It, 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 it's, it, this is a change election in a lot of ways, as 1968 was. We'll have see how that actually turns mm-hmm. out. We're recording this, obviously, before the results of it. We'll see how that holds up <laughs> a year from now. But, you know, another interesting little cultural touchstone, as people were trying to find comfort after the summer of 1968, and the riots of fires of the spring and the summer. Elvis did Elvis 1968. Mm. He did his return to network television, the black leather suit, unplugged. It wasn't him with a band. It was an acoustic version of his hits and reimagined. And there was all of a sudden this return to normalcy for that one moment in 1968 Mm. that created basically a sea change that that really entered into the 1970s, what you're talking about. Whereas we were trying to figure out who we were. Were we Elvis America? Were we Beatles America? Were we Abby Hoffman America? Yeah, yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And, you know, that was also the two Americas, Roe, were reflected so much, you know, at the movies because you had films like Easy Rider coming along, but then films like Oliver winning Academy Awards. Then you had 2001 A Space Odyssey, but you'd have... You know, these old, and even more so on television. Network television was ignoring what was happening in the streets in Chicago and across America. If you look at the top rated shows of the late 60s, once in a while you'd get something like The Mod Squad or Room 222 that tried to be a hipster (laughs) show. But it was all these, these rural shows were still big hits then. Beverly Hillbillies and Petticoat Junction Green and Green Acres. And then you had Gomer Pyle, USMC, which was set in the present day about a Marine. And they never mentioned, never once mentioned the Vietnam War. It existed in this fantasy universe where it was still the wacky, never a wacky time, but, you know, the time for a wacky comedy set against the backdrop of the Marines, which is insanity when you think about it. This movie, of course, reflects what was happening in reality. And it does touch a little bit about other things. Like, there's a lot of getting high. Yeah. You know, because there was. And there's, you know, you might not. You might get into a relationship that where you, you weren't even engaged to the other person. You might have just met that person. You might actually get into a relationship with a federal agent and not even realize it. I don't want to give too yeah. much away about yeah. that. But yeah. that is one of the most fascinating parts of this movie. If you've not yet seen it, obviously, if you're listening to this, we're urging you to go to Netflix and see The Trial of the Chicago 7. I think it's one of the best movies of the year. I gave it four stars in my review in the Chicago Sun-Times, which people can check out. And I do expect it to, to receive uh, multiple Oscar nominations. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, one of the things that ended that tumultuous year of 1968 was this hopeful moment of United States astronauts orbiting the moon. In our next podcast, we're going to look at the beginning of the space program, Disney+. Plus is rebooting The Right Stuff, the great movie from the 1980s, and of course, based on the Tom Wolfe classic. Americans love stories. This story ends with a climax in space, and it starts right here on Earth. Astronaut. Astro meaning star, not 
Voyager. Remember to tell your friends all about Roe and Roper the podcast. Yep, we're back. Available anytime, anywhere, on any device. Special thanks to our presenting sponsor, AmericanEagle.com. On behalf of Richard Roper, I'm Ro Khan. We'll see you next time.